Good afternoon. This hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Today we gather to consider four nominations. The Honorable Brian Nichols to be the U.S. Ambassador to Zimbabwe. Mr. Gordon Sondland to be the U.S. Representative to the European Union with the rank of Ambassador. Mr. Ronald Gidwitz to be U.S. Ambassador to Belgium. And Ms. Sherith Norman Chalet to be the U.S. Representative to the United Nations for UN Management and Reform with the rank of Ambassador and Alternative U.S. Representative to the Sessions of the United Nations General Assembly. That's a mouthful. <laughs> I, I want to welcome the nominees and their families, and, and in your opening statements, I hope you'll introduce your families and your friends uh, to this committee, and I congratulate all of you on your selection by the President for these positions, and I want to thank you for your willingness to serve. Uh, before moving to opening statements, I'd like to welcome several distinguished colleagues who will help introduce our nominees, Senator Tillis, Senator Tillis, Senator Wyden will introduce Mr. Sondland, and Senator Gardner and Senator Durbin will introduce Mr. Gidwitz. Senator Tillis, if you'd like to begin. Thank you, Mr. Chair. And members, uh, I should say members of the committee, it is my great privilege to introduce Mr. Gordon Sondland, who's been nominated to serve as the United States Ambassador to the European Union. Mr. Sondland was born in Seattle, Washington, and as a first-generation American, his family history is both fascinating and instructive as to why he has the experience and understanding to serve as U.S. Ambassador to the EU. His parents, Gunther and Frieda Sondland, were born in Berlin, Germany, and were married in 1937. They were forced to escape the Nazi regime in Germany. His mother was able to escape because her father was Russian and those with Russian passports could leave. She ended up in Uruguay, where Mr. Sondland's sister was born. His father was not so fortunate, and he had to be smuggled out of Germany. He actually wound up in France, where he joined the French Foreign Legion and fought in North Africa. He was put in a concentration camp in Africa, where he was rescued by a British army. He then joined the British army, being fluent in German, assisted with decoding German ciphers. After eight years, Mr. Sondland's parents were reunited and moved to Seattle in 1953, where Gordon was born four years later. Gordon went on to graduate from the University of Washington in Seattle and began his business career in commercial real estate before managing the Aspen Group, an investment fund, for more than a decade. Mr. Sondland is currently the founder, chairman, and CEO of Providence Hotels, excuse me, he originally purchased a bankrupt hotel and transformed it into the enterprise he manages today, a national company which now employs nearly 1,000 employees and owns and manages hotels across a geographically diverse environment in the United States. In addition to his great business experience, Mr. Sondland has been heavily involved in a number of philanthropic activities. He's co-founder of the Gordon Sondland and Catherine J. Durant Foundation, which strives to help families and boost communities. He's also served on a number of local, state, national boards and advisory committees in the past, and he currently serves on several boards, including U.S. Bank Corp., Washington State Advisory Board, Sanford School Board of Visitors at Duke University, Oregon Health and Science University Foundation, and the George W. Bush Center. His family history and his contextual understanding that comes with it, combined with his extensive business experience and large enterprise in negotiations and markets and problem solving, relationship building, and managing competing interests, ideally suit him for the task. I would also tell you 
He's a man of uh, great character and uh, a great mentor to two of his kids who had the good sense to go to a North Carolina school. Uh, they're at Duke University. I'm sorry you didn't have the grades to get into UNC Chapel Hill, but, <laughs> but Duke's a good plan B. So Mr. Mr. Chair, thank you so much for holding this here, and I could not think of a better person to take the post as ambassador to the U, Mr. Gordon Sondland. Thank you, Senator Tillis. Senator Wyden. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. And let me make this a filibuster-free zone and uh, perhaps uh, just have my remarks put, uh, put in the record and give you a sense of why I'm here. I have known Gordon Sondland, known in the Pacific Northwest as Gordy, for well over a quarter of a century. And I think Senator Murphy asked, well, how's that come about? Did he want to play in the NBA too? You know, it was basketball what did it? Not really. Uh, there is a really small Jewish community in Oregon, and we pretty much know each other. So uh, the Zidels and the Rosenfelds and the Tanzers and the Sondlands, we're just people who get together and back good causes and try to stand up for our state and particularly have an interest in global kind of matters because of our family background. We are both, Gordon Sondland and I, we are the children of German parents. And both of our families fled the Nazis in the 30s. Gordon's father used his foreign language fluency to help the British Army during the war. My dad, who lived for a while in Ridgefield, Connecticut, wrote the propaganda pamphlets for our army that we dropped on the Nazis. And I'm telling you, those pamphlets smoked. I mean, it basically told the Nazis they were going to freeze if they didn't pack it in and give up to the red, white, and blue. So both Gordon's family and mine ended up in the United States as refugees. And I think we all know America has always called to our shores from every nation on earth, the industrious and the creative, the steadfast and the devout. And in effect, we had a constant infusion of individuals who share red, white, and blue values of hard work and love of country, the very core of our greatness. And my sense is, and Gordon and I have kind of touched on this over the years, that families like ours and kids like us, who are really first-generation kids of refugees, there's a word for it, it's called tikkun alum, where you try to perfect the world. But I think what I'd say is Gordon and families like ours, we always thought it was our job to give back. Always try to find a way to give back was the way people talked about it in Jewish families in Oregon, whether it was the Sondlands or the Rosenfelds or the Widens. Gordon and his wife Katie have been supporters of so many causes. One of the things that I especially like about the family is they've been very generous to the Portland Art Museum. And as a result now, kids can go 
to this terrific museum in Oregon. You know, we're 3,000 miles away from some of what people think of as the museums of New York and, and Washington, D.C., but now, because of the Sondland's kids get to go to an art museum uh, free. Gordy's also been involved in a number of other things that I feel very strongly about. I know uh, both the, the chair and the ranking minority member care greatly about the Oregon, uh, care greatly about healthcare. Gordon has been involved in the Oregon Health and Sciences University Foundation, where we're doing with their good work, and Phil Knight as well, who made a very generous donation recent, recently, some cutting edge work uh, to deal with cancer. So I'll just close by way of saying that I think if you look at the totality of the experience that the Sondlands bring to this post at a time when lots of politics is polarized and divisive, Gordon Sondland's going to be a really good fit. And I'll close with just one kind of comment about our, our state. What I've come to feel is we sort of have an Oregon way about us. And it's not like written down somewhere. It's not, you know, in our Pioneer Square in downtown Portland. But it's all about, you'll take a good idea wherever you can get it, caring about people, having a good heart. Uh, our late colleague here in the Senate, Mark Hatfield, really practiced the Oregon way. Our late mayor in Portland, Vera Katz, practiced the Oregon way. I think when Gordon Sondland assumes this post, and I'm going to say I really hope he is uh, confirmed, he's going to speak with real impact, with an Oregon Way type impact for problem solving, for values that we hold dear, particularly on issues like anti-Semitism, respect for human rights, and it's a pleasure to be able to be, I guess, part of the Oregon Caucus on behalf of the nominee, uh, Gordon D. Sondland. Thanks, Senator Wyden. Without objection, your written statement will be entered into the record. Uh, Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thanks for holding this hearing. Uh, let me welcome uh, first, though, Christina Gidwitz uh, to the committee hearing. Uh, Christina is the love of Ron Gidwitz, our nominee ambassador to Belgium, uh, the love of Ron's life. I don't know if I'm supposed to say this, but I am going to say it anyway and ask for forgiveness afterwards. Uh, Ron didn't get married until his 40s because he spent all of the time before that trying to convince Christina to say yes. I think that's the story, correct? Uh, but I, I also want to welcome Scott, who's here today, uh, his son and, and new fiancé, new fiancé as in the last week, uh, and Alexander, his son, who is in Australia. Uh, welcome to the family uh, for, and, and for being here today. Thank you. Uh, the first time I met Ron, I knew immediately that I was going to get along great with him. Walking into his office in Chicago, there was a picture, a poster on his wall. It was a piece of farm equipment. Uh, a piece of farm equipment, a company called Cockins, I believe it was. Uh, and on the, as a, somebody who grew up in a very small town who uh, sold farm equipment, uh, I knew a heck of a lot about a equipment called a rod weeder and didn't think anybody else in America off of the farm would know about it until I met Ron. Uh, and we had a long conversation about Midwest companies that have a legacy presence in Colorado and beyond. And here was Ron that morning talking about all these household names that helped my community, my hometown, thrive, that he was a part of. Of course, there's his resume, which uh, we can talk about today, and it shows that he's more qualified uh, to serve our great nation in this capacity as anyone else. Uh, he's decades of business experience leading nationally recognized brands and companies. 
He's been a national leader in business executives for national security, a leader of the Boys and Girls Clubs across the nation. Didn't take long for me to recognize, though, that Ron Gidwitz just wasn't a business leader or a political leader. His bio is filled with far more than job experience. He is a mentor, a philanthropist, community leader. He is deep into leadership of the arts and the incredible Field Museum in Chicago. Mr. Gidwitz lives up to that adage of whom much is given, much is expected. There are few who lead, give, engage, champion, and inspire as much as Christina and Ron. The list of their generosity goes on and on to healthcare, welfare of children, support for our military, national security, veterans, and of course, education. Yet none of it's done seeking recognition or asking anything of them in return. Uh, it truly is to live up to that commitment, much is expected, and they have indeed lived up to this incredible standard. The Gidwitz family has never stopped giving, leading, championing others. And today's new mission is just one more step in giving back to his country, to our country. I know that this is why some of those closest to him call him Father Ron. He is one that serves uh, everyone. People come to him for wisdom, guidance, and when needed, some hard truth-telling. Peer-to-peer, CEO-to-CEO, or even young leaders and students. In the words of some of his closest friends, he serves as a source of strength and wisdom for all who seek him out. His greatest achievement is not how much he has given, but how he has impacted, influenced, and inspired all those around him. The mission in Belgium is more important than ever. Whether it's addressing the challenges in Europe or the tri-mission opportunities in Brussels, he will be a beacon of American values and a point of pride and diplomacy that will give comfort to all of us who recognize the importance of this role, the leadership an ambassador provides, and the value of selfless leadership. I'm honored to be here today supporting Ron, his family, and I urge my colleagues to do the same. Congratulations. Thanks, Senator Gardner. Senator Durbin. Thanks, Mr. Chairman. It's great to be back at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. I'm on leave of absence. I promise someday I will return, just like MacArthur. But uh, I wanted to be here today especially because of uh, the nomination of Ron Gidwitz to be our next ambassador to Belgium. I won't replicate the remarks, the kind remarks of Cory Gardner uh, of Colorado on behalf of Ron and his family. But I will tell you that Ron and I share something in common, a life experience that goes back a few years. We were both interns in the United States Senate the same year, working for the same senator. Uh, Morris Udall, a congressman from Arizona, once said, if you have politics in your bloodstream, only embalming fluid will replace it. During the course of my uh, internship in that Senate office, I got politics in my bloodstream, and I've never quite left Capitol Hill since. Uh, Ron took a different path. He went back to Chicago, into the business world, uh, successful in that world uh, with private business as well as with his investments and other endeavors, did well for himself. But as Corey has reminded us, he didn't just sit on that success and bank the money and walk away from his responsibilities to many others. Uh, and I've known that for a long time. We're in an area of era, I should say, where there's argu arguments made about hyper-partisanship. But I know that uh, when it came to service for the public, Ron was uh, stepping up to serve Chicago's Democratic mayors as much as his own Republican friends. He included chairing the city's Economic Development Commission under Mayors Harold Washington and Eugene Sawyer. He chaired the City Colleges of Chicago under Mayor Richard Daley. Then he chaired the Illinois State Board of Education and he served as well as Corey's mentioned as chairman and chairman emeritus for the Boys and Girls Club of America in which he played a leading role for nearly 30 years. Over and over again, he stepped up for public service. He'll do it again. Belgium is an important ally of the United States. 
The European Union's future is an important question for the United States. The future of the NATO alliance is one that we have to address on a regular basis and, sh and should remind everyone it, it's meant peace in the world for a long period of time. Ron Gidwitz is the right person to serve as America's face and America's voice in Belgium, and I'm happy to endorse his nomination. Well, thanks, Senator Durbin. I want to thank all of our Senate colleagues for coming here and providing an introduction. I think the bipartisan support for these nominees speaks well of them and of, of this process. So as Chairman Corker always says, you're welcome to stay, just not sitting there. Uh, but <laughs> really, do, really, really do appreciate you uh, making those introductions. Uh, I want to thank my other colleagues for, for attending, and I want to be respectful of their time. So uh, rather than reading an opening statement, I'll just uh, ask for consent to enter it into the record. I'll turn to uh, Senator Murphy. Uh, I will take your cue, and we can uh, get right to the, uh, to the nominees. Well, good. So let me again uh, begin by thanking our nominees, uh, your families, for your willingness to serve in these very important capacities. Uh, these postings involves, involve significant sacrifice, not only from just you, but, you know, for me personally, but also for your families. Uh, the, the positions you're in are going to be extremely important from a standpoint of representing America to your countries, your institutions, but also rep representing those countries and institutions back to this body. And I'm sure you'll do a great job. So we'd like to start with the uh, Honorable Brian Nichols. Uh, Ambassador Nichols is the President's nominee to be U.S. Ambassador to Zimbabwe. Uh, he is a career member of the Foreign Service and served as U.S. Ambassador to Peru from 2014 to 2017. His prior postings include Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for International Narcotics Law Enforcement Affairs from 2011 to 2013, and Deputy Chief of Mission at the U.S. Embassy in Bogota from 2007 to 2010. Ambassador Nichols. Chairman Johnson, Ranking Member Murphy, and distinguished members of the committee. It is an honor to appear before you today as the President's nominee to be the next United States Ambassador to the Republic of Zimbabwe. I am profoundly grateful to have the confidence of the President and the Secretary of State. As I approach 30 years in the Foreign Service, serving at some of our most challenging missions, it is a humbling distinction to appear before the Senate for the second time as a nominee to serve the American people as Ambassador. My professional achievements owe to the wonderful women who join me today. My beautiful wife, Jerry, also a senior foreign service officer, and my daughters, Alex and Sophie. They have all pushed me to be a better person, sacrificed for my career, and nurtured me with their love and support. I would also like to recognize my older brothers, David and Keith, for the powerful example that they have set for me, though they could not be here today. I've had the good fortune to represent the country that I love in fascinating countries around the world. I have advanced American values of respect for democracy, human rights, and the rule of law throughout my career. Those are values that my late father, Charles Nichols, a Fulbright scholar and founder of Brown University's Africana Studies program, instilled in me and my brothers. My mother, Mildred Nichols, has served the people of Rhode Island, promoting higher education, vocational training, and charitable programs to lift people out of poverty for 50 years. Should I be confirmed, I will draw upon those values and my experience to strengthen our relations with Zimbabwe as it reforms, promote American principles, and help the people of Zimbabwe build a better future. As I have in all of my previous assignments, I will have no higher priority than the welfare and security of American citizens. 
After 38 years of independence, Zimbabwe approaches a crossroads. The government and people of Zimbabwe have the opportunity to follow a new path, to become a stable and democratic country while returning to the prosperity of the past. This is what the Zimbabwean people need and deserve. To fulfill this goal, the Zimbabwean government should intensify its efforts to carry out profound governance, electoral, human rights, and economic reforms. An absolutely critical test will be the Zimbabwean authorities' ability to deliver on July 30th a free, fair, and credible national election in accordance with international standards. Given Zimbabwe's enormous potential, genuine reforms can and will yield great benefits for her people. If confirmed, I look forward to close and continued collaboration with our Congress to help Zimbabwe along a path of positive change. As we continue to support Zimbabwe's democratic development, we must also continue to invest in the people of Zimbabwe, in health care, people-to-people exchanges, humanitarian aid, and business development to preserve the human capital needed to grow and improve Zimbabwe in the future. Today's Zimbabweans can look back across the centuries at a creative and complex civilization that built great Zimbabwe and influenced an entire continent. I have faith that with our support, once given the opportunity to communicate, organize, and express their will, the people of Zimbabwe will find the best path forward and pursue it successfully. My recent Foreign Service assignments provide rich experience should the Senate confirm me to serve as Ambassador to Zimbabwe. As Ambassador to Peru, I led a large mission that focused on improving the rule of law, fighting transnational crime and corruption, strengthening our host nation's institutions, and promoting respect for human rights, particularly of women, girls, and disadvantaged groups. In that role, I led a unified mission initiative to promote American businesses and grow American jobs, earning the department's Cobb Award for those efforts. Prior to that, I helped direct the State Department's rule of law, anti-crime, and counter-narcotics programming around the world, including in Africa. As the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Affairs, I directed a team of nearly 7,000 professionals who work every day to expand access to justice, protect civilians, and combat crime around the world. I am especially proud of our efforts to expand our partnerships in Africa to combat wildlife trafficking and build more professional police and prosecutors. In those positions, as well as Deputy Chief of Mission in Bogota, I shaped organizations that were more diverse than ever in terms of background and expertise, improved morale, ensured tight management controls, and effectively advanced our nation's policies and priorities. Should the Senate confirm me, I will aim to exemplify the highest standards of our great nation while doing so. I look forward to partnering with you to advance America's interest in Zimbabwe and stand ready to answer your questions now and in the future. Thank you, Master Nichols. Uh, our next nominee is Mr. Gordon Sondland, uh, the President's nominee to be U.S.'s representative of the European Union. I think after the introductions by Senator Wyden and Senator Tillis, I don't think any further uh, induction is necessary. So, Mr. Sondland. Be, uh, before I begin, I want to thank uh, both Senators Tillis and Wyden for a overly generous introduction. It was uh, much appreciated. Chairman Johnson, Ranking Member Murphy, and distinguished members of the Foreign Relations Committee, good afternoon. It's an honor to appear before you as the President's nominee to serve as the United States Ambassador to the European Union. I'm grateful to President Trump for the faith and confidence he's placed in me and to Secretary Pompeo for his support. And I'm very grateful to you for your consideration of my nomination. 
Before we begin, please allow me to introduce the members of my family, all here in attendance with me. First, my wife Katie, without whose intelligence, kindness, patience, and wit, I might have achieved very little, certainly not a place at this table. She's a formidable success in business as well as in our home, and she's been an enduring source of strength and humbling smart advice since the day I was fortunate to meet her nearly 30 years ago. Sitting next to Katie are our two proudest accomplishments, our children Max and Lucy, both of whom are undergraduates at Duke and both of whom departed very challenging summer internships so they could be here today. Absent today, but with me in spirit this past decade are my parents, Gunther and Frieda Sondland. Having immigrated here in 1953 after so many years of extreme travail, they adopted America and America adopted them with a passion unrivaled by anyone I've since encountered. Theirs was a story of intense personal sacrifice, unshakable spirit and faith, hard work, good luck, and a deep commitment devoted in equal parts to the United States and to each other. Having met and married in Berlin in 1938, Gunther and Frieda and my sister Lucy, unlike so many of their less fortunate relatives, were able to flee the scourge of Nazism. In 1939, Frieda and Lucy found safe haven in South America, while Gunther promptly volunteered to take up arms against the murderous authoritarian regime from which they had just escaped, first with the French Foreign Legion in Africa and later with the British Army in Burma. World War II came to a close, and two years later, so did Gunther and Frieda's eight-year separation when they were reunited in Montevideo, Uruguay in 1947. Along with tens of thousands of other Jews, Gunther's surviving family had sought shelter in Shanghai. Soon, Gunther Frieda and my sister Lucy found fortunate permanent refuge in Seattle, Washington, on the northwestern edge of our great country. Here, they raised two children, including me, the first of my family ever to claim natural-born citizenship in the United States. Here, they embarked on their own unique American dream, American citizens eventually starting and running a small, successful dry-cleaning business for the next 30 years. Here they labored, loved, made many friends, and had a positive impact on their community. Here they never ceased to be grateful to the country that had given them hope, safety, and a new beginning. Gunther and Frieda fought hard for their American citizenship. They cherished it and nurtured it. They bequeathed to us neither riches nor property, but something much more treasured, an abiding respect for industry, determination, and self-sufficiency. A deep love of God, family, and country, faith in the rule of law, and finally, the certainty that self-governance is essential to happiness, prosperity, and true liberty. Denied so many of these for so long, Gunther and Frieda embraced these American values with fervor. If confirmed, everything I say and do will be in advancement of American interests and these principles first and foremost. They are certainly the principles that guide me throughout my life. Most of them, of course, comprise the foundational Western principles that undergird the US-EU relationship that has endured since 1951. Between us, the United States and the EU member nations wield the largest economic and military power in the world. They dominate global trade and they lead in international political developments. It is why our unique relationship with Europe must only be strengthened and protected. As President Trump said last year in his Warsaw speech establishing the preservation of the West as his primary foreign policy goal in Europe, quote, there is nothing like this community of nations. 
The world has never known anything like it. We must have the desire and the courage to preserve it in the face of those who would subvert and destroy it." Close quote. As you know better than most, there are many challenges that confront us. Trade, security, the migrant crisis, Brexit, and the disposition of JCPOA are very much at the forefront. But no one should doubt that the EU has an essential role in perpetuating our shared values of freedom, peace, and prosperity across Europe and around the world. To the benefit of our European friends, but also to a vast swath of American people, the 5.5 trillion in annual commerce we share is just one compelling testament to that. Finally, while much has been said about the tensions that currently exist within the US-EU partnership, it is important to remember historically these ups and downs, these instances of public posturing have been the norm. That's just the nature of complicated relationships. While it won't be always easy, our shared goals and values will triumph over our differences. I believe that my professional experience of the last several decades are instrumental in preparing me to lead the mission at the EU should you confirm my nomination. I'm gratified to have launched a hospitality and real estate holding company larger than I would have ever imagined and sustaining several thousand individuals and their families from all walks of life and places. I've also traveled extensively throughout the world, including across Europe, and have a knowledge and deep respect for European culture and politics. While I've been fortunate to visit the vast majority of the EU member countries, if confirmed, I look forward to visiting them all. I'm proud that the first language I spoke at home was German, and if confirmed, I'll look forward to once again conversing with our friends throughout Europe in English, but also in German where spoken. During the course of my life, I'd had significant experience in policymaking, working with lawmakers from both parties and at every level of government, in negotiating business deals across borders and in advising several large companies with both domestic and international operations. I've always been comfortable working on a bipartisan basis. If confirmed, I can assure you that I will bring my life's experiences and skills to represent the United States at the European Union. Thank you for your consideration, and I would be pleased to answer your questions. Thank you, Mr. Sondland. Our next nominee is Mr. Ronald Gidwitz, the nominee mm -hmm. to be U.S. Ambassador to Belgium. And again, uh, following the uh, introductions by Senator Gardner and Durbin, I don't think we need any further introduction. Mr. Gidwitz. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Chairman Johnson, Ranking Member Murphy. Oops, push the button. Ranking Member Murphy, distinguished members of the committee. It's a tremendous honor to appear before you today as President Trump's nominee to be the United States Ambassador to the Kingdom of Belgium. For me, it's humbling that the President and Secretary Pompeo have the confidence in me, hopefully with your approval, to represent the American people in engaging with a critically important ally in the key center of Europe. I would particularly like to thank Senator Durbin and Senator Gardner for speaking on my behalf today. I'd also like to thank several members of my family who sit behind me. First and foremost is Christina, to whom I've been married for almost 43 years. We have two sons, Alexander, who lives in Australia, and Scott, who joins us here today. Alex is married to a lovely young lady, Marlene, and she recently gave birth to our first grandson, Christopher. Scott is accompanied by his newly minted fiance, Mallory DeHaven. My family's love and support has been a constant in every phase of my life. During my career, I've had a multiplicity of experiences in government service, in the private sector, as well as extensive exposure to the not-for-profit arena. In the private sector, I had the privilege of serving as the president and CEO of Helene Curtis, a toiletry and cosmetic manufacturer and marketer. 
When I took over the company, it had sales of just over $100 million. When the business was sold 17 years later, the company was closing in on $1.5 billion and was on Fortune, the Fortune 300 list with 40% of its sales coming from outside the U.S. I've also served on a number of private sector boards of directors. One of note among them was American National Can, a subsidiary of the French aluminum company Pechenet. In the public sector, I was a founding executive committee member of the National Committee for Employer Support of the Garden Reserve and served in that capacity for 10 years. In addition, I was the chairman of the Economic Development Commission of the City of Chicago at a time when the Midwest was under great stress. I also served as the chairman of the City Colleges of Chicago, the second largest community college district in the country. As well, I served two terms as the chairman of the Illinois State Board of Education. I was appointed to these and other public service positions by both Republicans and Democrats. I believe the record will show that I can work well and lead organizations no matter their political stripe. In the not-for-profit arena, I've worked in many kinds of establishments, from social service to cultural institutions to educational organizations. I've served as in virtually every position over my 44-year tenure with Boys and Girls Clubs of America, including chairing the national organization. I served as the chairman of the Field Museum of Natural History, as well as the Chicagoland Chamber of Commerce. In short, I've led large organizations and small ones, public and private and not-for-profit. I feel confident my past experience in government, business, and philanthropy has prepared me for this important opportunity to lead the United States mission to the Kingdom of Belgium. If confirmed as, to serve as U.S. Ambassador, I will work closely with the teams across the government to strengthen our relationship and focus on the following areas of our alliance. First and foremost, I will work with Belgian officials at all levels to ad advance American interests, protect American citizens, and promote American democratic values. The freedom of speech, the freedom of press, and the freedom of, of religion are values that cannot and should not be compromised. If confirmed, I will work closely with the Belgian government to address collective security, collective security concerns. I will encourage our Belgian partners to move aggressively to fulfill their Wales Declaration commitment to spending 2% of GDP on defense by the year 2024. Working together, we can further strengthen communication between our law enforcement and counterterrorism communities, enhance NATO, and further global security. If confirmed, I hope to advance our economic interests. More than 900 American companies are represented in Belgium. In 2017, U.S. exports of goods and services to Belgium were $35.5 billion. Imports from Belgium were 20.4, creating a trading surplus of $15.1 billion. We are Belgium's largest trading partner outside the European Union. If confirmed, I will work with our Commerce Department and our Embassy economics experts to further an already robust and successful partnership. And finally, if confirmed, I will work diligently to lead our mission team and work closely with all agencies to deepen our historic alliance with the Belgian government and the Belgian people. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member, and members of the committee, I thank you for the honor of appearing before you today, and I look forward to answering your questions. Thank you, Mr. Goodwitz. Our last but not least, 
Uh, Ms. Ther Sheriff Norman, Norman Chalet is our nominee to be U.S. Representative of the United Nations for UN Management and Reform and alternate U.S. Representative to the sessions of the United, States, United Nations General Assembly. Ms. Chalet has served as the UN Management and Reform Counselor for the U.S. Mission to the U.N. since 2014 as the Deputy Counselor from 2012 to 2014. She also served as a Special Advisor to the U.S. Mission to the U.N. from 2008 to 2011 as a senior advisor in the State Department's Bureau of Legislative Affairs from 2003 to 2007. Prior to working for the State Department, Ms. Chalet was a staffer for Congressman Jim DeMint in Greenville, South Carolina. Ms. Chalet. Thank you, Chairman Johnson, Ranking Member Murphy, and distinguished members of the committee. I am honored to appear before you today as the President's nominee to serve as the representative of the United States of America to the United Nations for UN Management and Reform. I am grateful to President Trump and Ambassador Haley for their confidence and for this opportunity. I am joined here today by my husband, George, whose love and support has been integral to me, being a working mother and representing the United States at the UN for the last 10 years. And my oldest child, Nikolai, who is already a mini UN diplomat, having participated in many UN meetings after missing mom through, during marathon all night negotiations. My other two children, my daughters, Kara and Madeline, unfortunately could not join me here as I am not sure I could contain their enthusiasm during the hearing as they are three and one. I am also joined by my family, my parents, Scott and Marilee Norman, whose love and support provided the foundation that led me here today, as well as my sister Peggy and her daughters, Jaina and Annabelle, and my brother-in-law, Eli. Enabling the United Nations to deliver on its mandate to maintain international peace and security, address human rights and development needs is no simple task. The United States continues to be a champion for greater effectiveness and efficiency by emphasizing the need for the United Nations to show tangible impact and results, and by encouraging better ways of working. President Trump, Secretary Pompeo, and Ambassador Haley have all prioritized showing the value of the UN to the American taxpayer. This falls squarely on my shoulders if confirmed as the US representative to the United Nations for Management and Reform. Through my experience as the UN Management Reform Counselor for the United States Mission to the UN, I have seen firsthand the value of positive reform and the good that can be achieved through an effectively managed UN, but also the consequences when it is not effectively managed. For example, when we hold peacekeepers accountable for their performance, we see better results for the intended beneficiaries of peacekeeping operations. I will assume the, assume the job, if confirmed, at an auspicious time as Secretary General Guterres' plan to the reform the UN system is underway. This presents real opportunities to align the UN's work on peace and security, development, and internal management with US values and priorities. I am honored to work with alongside Ambassador Haley and under her leadership to expand our reform efforts, including greater accountability and transparency, strengthened whistleblower protections, fiscal discipline, and making the UN fit for purpose. If confirmed, I intend to work closely with other member states in the General Assembly to advance these priorities and other issues related to sound management and reform. Thank you for this opportunity to appear before this committee today, and I look forward to taking your questions. Thank you, Ms. Shelley. There has been a vote called. Senator Murphy's gone to vote. As soon as he gets back, I'll leave and vote. But for the time being, we'll turn it over to Senator Flake for questions. Well, thank you. I want to congratulate you all and your families. I know it's a tremendous sacrifice uh, 
our families uh, to have you serve like this. But, and uh, Ron, it's good to see you here in this capacity. And, and I, I know of your good work in Chicago. So, uh, Ambassador Nichols, uh, we had a good visit in my office yesterday. It's, we all know, and if you don't, uh, Zimbabwe is uh, going through an elections uh, for the first time in about 40 years, uh, a, a, a free and fair election after the departure of Robert Mugabe. So it's an important time there. Can you talk about the importance? You're hoping to get there, I think, uh, by the 17th of, uh, of February, or I'm sorry, of July. What, what, uh, why is that important? Why is it important for us to have a, an ambassador there for the election time? Thank you, Senator Flake, and it's an honor to uh, talk with someone who has such deep experience in the continent and, and in Zimbabwe in particular. Uh, the voice of the United States in calling for a free, fair, credible election that gives the Zimbabwean people greater confidence in their leaders and the the forcefulness with which we consider uh, democracy important in Zimbabwe uh, is a priority for me and for the United States government. Uh, having a person on the ground with the full force of the President of the United States as his personal representative is vitally important to advance our interests. And uh, having had the honor to serve as an ambassador in the past, uh, it is something that uh, someone who does not have that investiture um, can't match. And I certainly hope that uh, I would be able to receive you and your colleagues in Zimbabwe in the future if confirmed. Well, thank you. I spent uh, time in the 1980s in Zimbabwe and uh, I have uh, looked forward to this day uh, for a long time uh, when they would have uh, free and fair elections and maybe have a, a post-Robert uh, Mugabe era. And it is important, as you say, we have a good uh, team there that you'll find when you, you get there. Uh, but we need an ambassador. And uh, so I'm glad that um, hopefully we can get this process done and have you there. And as they say in Zimbabwe, and Shona language, Makota Kotu, congratulations for this. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Flake. Um, let, let me just kind of ask a general question of all the nominees. Uh, I, I know you've covered, to a certain extent, this in your opening statement, but I really want to hone in on each, what each one of you views as your top one, two, or three priorities. You don't have to have three, but you know, maybe just the top one. Just give you a chance to expound on it a little bit more, and I'll start with you, Mr. Sondland. Uh, thank you, Senator Johnson. Uh, I think it's uh, an understatement uh, to say that the uh, relationship currently between the United States and the European Union is tense, uh, and one of my top priorities is to do a listening tour of all 28 member countries to bring the temperature down a little um, while these very delicate negotiations are going on over trade. Uh, once I'm through with that, um, one of my greatest priorities is to once again reestablish uh, the close relationship that the EU and the US have on a whole host of issues. When we work together, um, we're almost unstoppable as a team, and I'd like to get us back to that place. Ambassador Nichols. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. As alluded to earlier, the July 30th elections will be a crucial moment in Zimbabwe's history. An opportunity to have free, fair, credible elections will be my earliest and top priority there. But there are many other challenges that Zimbabwe faces. Profound reform to its institutions, to ensure the rule of law, to promote a private sector-led economy, 
to encourage transparency and respect for human rights in its governance and to give the Zimbabwean people the opportunity to succeed through the work of their own labor. These are profound challenges. These are challenges that did not arise overnight uh, and they will not be solved immediately. But we must work together and I look forward to working with you, sir, and your colleagues to advance American interests in Zimbabwe. Uh, Michelle A. Senator, I am looking forward to building on the reform efforts that have been underway for a few years, but particularly in right-sizing the organization and continuing to instill fiscal discipline, but also increasing the accountability and transparency. I think it dovetails very nicely with the Secretary General's efforts underway now, and we need to ensure that that becomes a reality and that we, we do increase that accountability, be it through strengthened whistleblower protection or addressing the terrible scourge of SEA, sexual exploitation and abuse that peacekeepers and civilians have committed. I look forward to continuing those and ramping up those efforts. Mr. Goodwitz. Thank you, Senator. Uh, given the difficulties of the last couple of years with respect to uh, attacks that have occurred in Belgium, one of my top priorities, in fact, my top priority is to ensure the safety of the 23,000 Americans that are living in Belgium, plus the many tourists that come through the country on an annual basis. Secondly, to work with the Belgian government and the Belgian agencies to strengthen the relationship and the multilateral programs and, and organizations that, that we share together. And then thirdly, given the fact that there are 900 plus American corporations there to find ways that we can build, a stronger, build on that strong relationship to bring jobs both to our country as well as to the country of Belgium. Well, thank you much. I'll go vote. I'll turn it over to Senator Murphy and I will walk as fast as I can. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Thank you to uh, all of you for uh, joining us uh, here today. Let me just get my bearings here, uh, running back into the room. Um, I'm not actually sure what Senator Johnson asked, so I will hopefully not uh, cover the same uh, territory that he did. Um, but uh, let me start with, uh, with you, Mr. Gidwitz. I don't know to what extent you talked about some of the uh, work we have done uh, with uh, Belgium and our multilateral relationship on uh, counterterrorism. Um, this is a very sort of fractured country from a governance standpoint, um, which makes it hard often to communicate with them about what they know regarding threats against their country. And with the visa waiver program, those are obviously immediate threats against the United States. Um, in prepping for this job, what have uh, you learned about the ways that we can uh, work with the government to try to enhance counterterrorism cooperation? Well, the good news, thank you, Senator, for the, for the question. Uh, the good news, uh, if confirmed, uh, I will certainly uh, work with our intelligence and military folks to uh, strengthen what is already an ongoing program. Uh, Prime Minister Michel undertook a, uh, a study several years ago, once after the uh, several of the attacks took place in, in Belgium. And as a result, many programs are currently underway. Uh, we, uh, if confirmed, I work with the US government agencies, the DEA, the FBI, and others to see if we can't uh, continue what is an ongoing program to make uh, Belgium a safer place for all of us. Um, great. Uh, uh... 
Mr. Sondland, thank you very much for spending some time uh, with me. Uh, we were able to, uh, to talk uh, privately uh, about the mission that you're about to undertake. I'm going to be very supportive of uh, your nomination. I thank you for taking up the job. Um, but as I mentioned privately, and I'll just say it publicly, um, you are going to be asked to carry out a policy which seeks to dissolve the transatlantic alliance. Um, and you may have different views, and Mr. Gidwitz, you may have different views, and there have been many others that have uh, gone to serve the United States in Europe, um, sitting exactly where you're sitting, who have had different views than that. Um, but you're going to find out that the only views that really matter are the president's. Uh, and the president has carried out a pretty intentional um, and consistent policy of trying to undermine uh, our alliance with Europe. Um, he cheers countries that try to leave Europe. Uh, he uses his social media to publish uh, really terrible, awful, nationalist, anti-Europe uh, propaganda. Uh, he wants Russia to be back into the G7. Uh, without having uh, 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 done their part with respect to the Minsk agreement. Um, and so um, I appreciate everyone that goes into this administration, especially those parts that serve the U.S.-Europe alliance, thinking that they can change the president's mind. No one has been successful yet. Um, and so um, let me ask you, uh, Mr. Sondland, a little bit about this, um, uh, about this issue over, over Russia. Um, because you've been preparing for this job and, and no doubt you've begun to have been briefed about what the administration policy is. Um, I assume, given the president's comments uh, as he went to the G7, that the U.S. policy today is for Russia to be admitted back into the G7 and that you will be sent to Europe to work with our G7 European partners to get Russia back in uh, to the G7. Um, given the president's comments from a week ago. Uh, do you understand that to be the policy, and do you understand that to be your mission? I heard the Thank you. I heard the president's comments in, um, in Canada, um, and I don't necessarily know if it is set U.S. policy. Uh, I haven't discussed it with the president. Uh, if it were to be U.S. policy, then I would work to further it. Um, without minimizing uh, the many, many other issues we have with Russia, uh, including uh, a lot of the activities over which we disapprove. So, you know, it's a walking and chewing gum at the same time issue. Um, and again, I haven't uh, been briefed by the president on what his actual policy is vis-a-vis -vis the G7. Um, do you... Uh Obviously, you're not going to create distance with the president, but um, talk to the committee a little bit about uh, how you plan to approach this question of uh, the planned tariffs against the European Union and the, and the retaliatory tariffs that they have uh, announced and are putting together uh, against the United States. Um, uh, how do you plan to approach what right now is an escalating trade war between the two countries? You said, I think, as I'm reading, your top priority is to bring the temperature down. Um, how do you do that if the president isn't committed to that, in fact, maybe committed to the opposite? Well, I, I disagree. I disagree with the premise that the president is trying to unwind the alliance. The, the president has a very unique negotiating style, um, and uh, it's, uh, it's now becoming uh, well known around the world how he does negotiate. Um, I think that the president is also mindful of the importance of the relationship and the many, many other things 
uh, which we share with the EU. And I don't agree that the president's goal is to unwind the relationship. I think the president's goal is to bring about free, fair, and equitable trade. So if his goal isn't to unwind the relationship or the European Union, then what do you make of uh, his um, very close association with those that led the Brexit campaign and his continued uh, association with the elements inside Britain that were seeking to bring that country outside of the European Union. That, to me, would seem a pretty deliberate attempt to use his power, both as a candidate and as a president, to try to cheer on uh, countries that no longer want to be part of the European Union and thus be part of the, uh, uh, the, the organization to which he'll be our representative. Uh, I think the people of the United Kingdom made their, uh, their own determination uh, as to where they wanted to go vis-a-vis -vis the EU relationship. I don't know that I would characterize the president's actions as cheerleading, um, and I also don't believe that the president is necessarily hell-bent on uh, dissolving the rest of the union. Um, I, I, I hear you taking issue with some of my opening comments to you. I, I will in turn take some issue with the way in which you framed your opening comments, um, categorizing the president's relationship with the European Union and Europe over the last year and a half as being part of the normal give and take. I don't actually think that you can find a period of time that rivals the last year and a half with respect to the U.S. relationship with Europe in the post-World War II uh, era, which I think uh, uh, f fairly categorizes the, the modern relationship between the continent and, and, and our country. And I really worry uh, about nominees that come before this committee um, and try to normalize uh, what is not a normal uh, time in American foreign policy. Um, at the same time, I do agree that uh, it would be great if you could take the temperature uh, down a notch. Um, let me ask you a question um, uh, on a subject that I think we, we agree on, and that's the future of uh, energy security in the region. Um, uh, Nord Stream 2 uh, is a, a project that would allow for Russia to um, be able to push an enormous amount of uh, fossil fuel product into Europe, uh, bypassing Ukraine. Uh, it's bad news for Ukraine. It's, in the U.S.'s viewpoint, bad news for Europe to be more heavily reliant on Russian gas. Um, what's your views on Nord Stream 2, and what do you understand is going to be your mission in uh, representing the United States on this issue before the European Union? Well, my primary mission, Senator, is to make sure that, and it's again in our selfish interest to see that Europe is not heavily dependent on one source of energy. Um, putting Europe in the hands of one supplier of energy who could at will uh, disrupt that energy flow would not be in the United States' interest. Uh, I also believe that there are various member countries of the EU um, that want to participate uh, with various other suppliers of energy, including the United States, and want to do it through contractual means rather than through political means, which give them some form of security uh, if those contracts are breached. Um. Uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Simon. Um, Mr. Nichols, um, can you talk a little bit uh, to us uh, about the role of uh, China uh, in Zimbabwe? Um, China has de you know, developed a very close relationship with uh, Mugabe and been a big investor in the country for a, a long time. 
Um, it, it hosted Zimbabwe's new leadership uh, for their, I think, first state visit. Um, uh, obviously, China's playing a big role you know, throughout the continent, but uh, talk a little bit about this, this very big play that they have made historically and seek to continue um, in Zimbabwe. Thank you, Senator, and that's, that's obviously an excellent question and a crucial issue for us. China has um, invested heavily in the extractive resources sector around the world, and Zimbabwe, uh, with its extensive mineral wealth, is, is certainly no exception to that. Uh, I believe that... Uh, private sector-led growth for Zimbabwe is important, but I also think it's important that uh, the people and government of Zimbabwe receive fair and equitable treatment for their resources, and I hope that they are entering into a trade relationship uh, with China with their eyes open uh, and certainly insisting that uh, all countries that invest in Zimbabwe respect the worker rights, respect uh, environmental regulations, and uh, do not allow the resources that they have to be taken uh, without proper compensation. And I believe that it's incumbent upon uh, the United States and our representatives around the world to insist on a level playing field for trade and engagement and to make sure that uh, we have an opportunity to succeed as well. And the reason that China has been such a big player, at least part of the reason, uh, has been because the United States and many other countries like us have uh, had a series of sanctions uh, on economic participation in Zimbabwe and aid. Um, and yet, um, many of those other donor governments are gradually scaling back their sanctions uh, during this period of transition, and Congress is set to consider legislation uh, that might modify conditions for assistance that were set out um, in the Zimbabwe Democracy and Economic Recovery Act back in 2001. So as we start to consider legislation uh, that may scale back some of our restrictions, um, and as you're sort of learning about some of the uh, ways in which we might better engage, do you have any thoughts or recommendations uh, for how we might go about passing legislation or drafting legislation that would uh, start to um, uh, lighten up, uh, start to modify those restrictions? Uh, thank you, Senator. I think New Zadera sends an important signal that uh, the United States remains committed to democracy, human rights, uh, economic freedom, rule of law, and anti-corruption efforts. Uh, the importance of our engagement uh, is that we are doing so in a principled way. The specifics of the legislation uh, uh, I, I don't think I can uh, comment on, but uh, I do believe that it sends a message of continued interest and prioritization of our relationship with Zimbabwe. I think it's very important also, Senator, to note that we do not have comprehensive sanctions on Zimbabwe and that the uh, problems in attracting foreign investment from Zimbabwe uh, are driven by the economic conditions there and the economic policies that their government has. Um, we don't have restrictions on investments in Zimbabwe, but rather dealings with specific individuals and entities. Uh, thank you very much. Um, uh, Ms. Shalai, just a couple of questions for you, and then I'll turn it over to Senator uh, Markey as we await 
uh, Chairman Johnson's return. I want to talk about peacekeeping for uh, a moment. The Trump administration has communicated its intent to um, reduce U.S. peacekeeping, uh, our peacekeeping assessment, 28%, 25%, depending on what legislation is operative from the United States uh, Congress. Um, really interesting report that GAO published earlier this year in which they um, compared the cost of the current UN peacekeeping mission in the Central African Republic with a hypothetical undertaking that would be done uh, by the United States military. And overall, GAO found that it would cost the U.S. more than twice as much to carry out a comparable mission if it was us versus our participation in UN peacekeeping. Um, so how, how do you translate to us what the Trump administration's plans are on peacekeeping? And um, in their desire to reduce the American commitment, there was some suggestion that there might be peacekeeping operations that could be wrapped up without or scaled back without any security detriment to the United States. Um, any clue as to what those operations may be? Have they been identified? Uh, and what do you make of that GAO report? You are nodding like you might be familiar with that report. Thank you, Senator. I think it's a, it's a series of, you captured quite a number of initiatives that we are under undertaking. I think that uh, the commitment to UN peacekeeping especially um, is, is very much there by the United States and we feel it is, is it's absolute critically, critical to our national security. Um, in, in terms of looking at our assessments, we, we've, we have said and the President has said that we'd like to see increased burden sharing by other member states. Uh, you know, the UN shouldn't be overly dependent on one single donor and this uh, Congress, like you said, through whichever operative language is there, um, has established 25%, and we feel that that is an adequate assessment rate for, and we still maintain our largest contribution. I think equally important to looking at the assessment rates and what the U U.S. should pay is looking at the missions themselves, and are they designed to, um, uh, to uh, promote political solutions, and the, the Ambassador Haley did outline several principles in that regard. Um, I think there are missions that are, that are currently under review that, uh, that fit that bill that could, could look at that. I mean, I, in uh, Darfur, uh, right now, that's under review, and, and we're continuing to look at several missions with those lenses. But I think we, coupled with looking at the efficiencies that the UN and making sure that the peacekeeping missions themselves are operating in the most effective manner is, is critical. And I think the GAO did point out the value of UN peacekeeping to the US and our national security interest. Uh, thank you. One final question, Mr. Chairman. Um, it's uh, again to you, Ms. Chalet. Um, uh, the um, Bureau of International Organizational Affairs at State Department is obviously one uh, that uh, you will work very closely with as uh, the liaison office between the State Department and um, the United Nations. Last week, foreign policy r reported that um, a former food and beverage lobbyist who was appointed as a senior advisor there, uh, Mari Stahl, uh, quote, had been quietly vetting career diplomats and American employees of international institutions to determine whether they are loyal to President Donald Trump and his political agenda, according to nearly a dozen current and former U.S. officials. According to this account, uh, Ms. Stull is actively making lists and gathering intel. Uh, reports are that the New York Times and Washington Post are also working on um, uh, filling in further details on this story. Two questions. Um, one, are you personally, have you been personally aware of 
uh, Ms. Stahl's activities to uh, apply what looked to be loyalty, political loyalty tests within the State Department uh, and um, international organizations, and whether or not you have personal knowledge of that, um, what is your opinion of, uh, uh, what, what's your thoughts on these reports and whether this activity is appropriate? Senator, thank you for that. I am not personally aware of the, those those charges, and I, I would refer you back to the State Department for for that. I, what I will say is that the United States has long looked or promoted American citizens' uh, employment at the UN, and we feel that is an absolute priority given our investment, but also for the American values that we can bring to the UN and the ways of working. And so if confirmed, I will continue to do that. I will also, I think these are serious uh, concerns that have been voiced. I'm aware of the articles and, and the content of them, and I will work with the International Organizations Bureau to ensure that we are promoting the most qualified because we are running up against countries who are putting their best forward as well and we want to ensure that we're adequately represented. Yeah, I guess the question is, do you believe it's appropriate for the administration to apply a political loyalty test uh, to U.S. employees either at the United Nations or within the State Department? Uh, Senator, no, I think it's uh, we should be looking at the most qualified Candidates, regardless of party. Thank you. Senator Markey. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. Uh, Mr. Sondland, um, North Korea is now hoping that there'll be a relaxation of sanctions upon them. You know, they're visiting uh, China, and uh, ultimately that will be their goal. How can we ensure that um, we work closely with the EU to make sure that not only the existing sanctions are, in fact, uh, enforced, remain in place, but um, that we also uh, put additional pressure on recalcitrant countries who have yet to participate in, the, uh, in that sanctions regime. Uh, good afternoon, Senator Markey. Uh, thank you. Um, I think the microphone is not on. Yeah, it should be. Okay. Uh, that... Actually, Senator Markey is one of my highest priorities. Um, uh, working in concert uh, with the EU, uh, the United States has the ability to create uh, an enormous amount of economic damage to the North Korean economy, uh, which creates the leverage needed for the president to successfully negotiate um, the uh, change in behavior that he's trying to negotiate. And one of, the, one of my first priorities uh, would be to uh, enlist the cooperation even more strongly of the EU and its member countries in that regard. Okay, and, and as you know, the EU's new privacy regime uh, went into effect about three weeks ago. And uh, they now essentially have a, uh, a privacy bill of rights for everyone in the EU and American companies doing business in Europe have to comply with um, that standard, uh, which is essentially an opt-in standard that the data that is collected uh, by companies in Europe not be uh, compromised without getting permission from those consumers. Um, if a company is requested, uh, required to get, a, uh, to get consent in order to share a European data and also required to tell European consumers exactly how their data is being used. Should that company uh, uh, provide American consumers with those same protections? I believe it should. You believe it should? Yes. Yeah. 
Uh, and I agree with you that uh, that's uh, where we're heading. Um, Europeans obviously suffered through uh, the German invasion, the Nazi occupation, uh, and subsequently uh, uh, the Soviet Union occupying much of Europe as well. And identity was very important during that time, which is why I think there is a heightened sensitivity because within the lifetimes of family members uh, in each one of those European countries, they had to basically try to survive based upon identity. And uh, that's why all of this online information is so absolutely uh, essential. Uh, now, with regard to tariffs, Mr. Sondland, the EU remains deeply concerned about what it views as protectionist U.S. trade policies and President Trump's criticism of uh, the uh, $150 billion goods trade deficit with the EU. In March, uh, the Trump administration announced it would impose uh, tariffs on imports of steel 25% and aluminum 10% from U.S. trading partners following a Department of Commerce determination that current steel and aluminum imports threatened U.S. national security. And on June 1st, those tariffs went into effect. Um, could you talk about those tariffs, our relationships with uh, the EU nations, uh, and how you uh, would suggest that we deal with this rift that is building uh, based upon these, these uh, tariffs? Uh, Senator, in, in my experience in the private sector, a tough economic negotiation between two arm's length parties uh, can often create a rift. Uh, it doesn't mean that it's an irreparable rift. It just means that you're engaged in uh, some high stakes bargaining. And again, I, I refer you back to my earlier comments um, where I believe that the, uh, the president values the EU relationship. Um, I believe that the United States and the EU um, share uh, a multitude of values and a multitude of other relationships unrelated to the tariffs. And that's uh, one very discreet segment of our relationship that is not going to be easy to resolve, but that's one of the jobs, if I'm confirmed, is to work on that. Agreed. And again, the litany is getting longer. Climate change, the Iran deal, the European Privacy Initiative, tariffs, it's just building issue by issue uh, into a situation, in my opinion, is unnecessary, but ultimately it is a great cause for concern because the Europeans are our closest allies and we need them on other initiatives as well. So uh, uh, thank you all for your willingness to serve our country and uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thanks, Senator Markey. And I know Senator Murphy does not have any further questions. I'm just gonna follow up on my, my partial first round. So if you have any further questions, okay. Uh, so let, let me follow up on my first round. Uh, to remind you, I just asked what, what the top one, two, three priorities are for you and your new post. And I'll start with Mr. Sondland. You, you talked about uh, really visiting all the members, uh, going on a listening tour, which I think is completely appropriate. It, it's vitally important to understand you know, other nations' perspective. Uh, having listened, what will be your message, though? It will be a give and take. What, what is going to be your message to our, to our EU partners? Our, our message, Senator, is that while we value the relationship, there are problems with the relationship that need to be resolved. And we can be respectful of the relationship, we can appreciate those areas in which we agree, but the relationship in its totality is not hunky-dory. 
uh, and there are some tough conversations that need to be had in order to advance America's interests. So that is part of the discussion. Uh, I know for my part, uh, and I think Senator Murphy as well, we meet with an awful lot of representatives from individual companies as well as from the EU, and we certainly are, are reinforcing the fact that uh, you know, the, the relationship, the alliances are, are strong, they will remain strong uh, as far as the eye can see from, from our standpoint. That's an extremely important part of that message. Amb Ambassador Nichols, uh, you talked about obviously the importance of the July 30th election, but then talked about the, the importance of reform, rule of law, which you know, we see repeatedly, you know, in our dealings, you know, particularly in Eastern Europe, uh, overcoming the legacy of, in Europe, it's, you know, the, the corruption of, of the Soviet era, that type of thing. It's very difficult to do. Um, what, what do you think is the greatest risk to Zimbabwe in establishing the rule of law? What, what's going to be the greatest impediment? Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, President Manigawa has... Um, talked about the need for profound reform in his country, and he's absolutely right. Uh, in terms of the challenges, there are many. It's, it's hard to signal just one. Uh, clearly, the professionalization and transparency of the security forces is very important. Insisting upon the rule of law, looking at the past corruption in the country, Dealing with the human rights abuses of the past through a truth and reconciliation process are just some of the issues uh, that need to be addressed for Zimbabwe to be able to move forward. And I know that across Zimbabwean society, people understand and are talking about those issues and moving in that direction, both uh, President Managawa as well as uh, opposition alliance candidate Chimisa have signaled those issues as priority ones and we look forward to working with Zimbabwe after a free, fair and transparent election uh, to address those challenges. It's really an opt op optimistic time period. How, how optimistic are you? The government of Zimbabwe has said many of the right things and done some of the right things. Uh, I believe that we have to be clear-eyed in our approach uh, and hold them to their own commitments and standards. The 2013 Constitution, their commitments uh, regionally with SADC uh, in terms of their commitments uh, to respect human rights and democracy, as well as their commitments within the African Union and obviously the broader international community. Uh, I believe that this is a great opportunity and I hope that the government of Zimbabwe will live up to its commitments. Michelle, as long as I've been reading newspaper, uh, we've been talking about UN reforms. Um, obviously, that's your top priority. What do you think is the single biggest impediment to reforming the UN? Um, or, or, or impediments? You, I mean, you talked about whistleblower protections, but I mean, what, 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 are, what are the main problems? I, to say the single most impediment, I think it's the political will of other countries in reaching those, that common uh, understanding and agreement on those reforms. I think other, there is cultural just uh, within the, the UN bureaucracy and just changing mindsets and uh, showing that business has to be done differently, and I think those are primarily the impediments that I face on a day-to-day -day basis. In, in, in a short period of time, how do you overcome that? Uh, it's through constant engagement and promoting our what our position is and our values and the, and the priorities that we place. Um, I think that the rising uh, it, 
interestingly, the rising rates or contributions of member states have changed that mindset in a sense. I've seen, seen more uh, countries that are more uh, attuned to budget discipline than they have been in the past. And so it is, it is there, there will be differences of agreements, um, and there are, but if confirmed, I will continue to work uh, promoting those on human rights and other areas that we will, that fundamentally and f philosophically face differences with some countries. So as we discussed in, in my office, I think, you know, the, the power of an anecdote of examples is, is uh, powerful. And so I certainly want to work with you, whether it's in this committee or as Chairman Homeland Security, uh, to highlight those examples of, of corruption or, you know, waste, fraud, and abuse that, that need to be reformed, because I think that's probably the, the best way to try and overcome those impediments. Uh, finally, Mr. Gidwitz, uh, uh, you said that your top priority is safety of Americans, which I agree with. And then uh, Senator Murphy apparently talked to you about CT counterterrorism programs and just cooperation. Uh, I'd kind of like to hear your answer. I'm going to, I'm going to listen. I'm going to read the record because I was out. But just you know, talk about how important it is for us to cooperate uh, with Belgium. Uh, they're in a unique situation. I know Brussels actually shut down not because of a terrorist act, but because of a threat of terrorism. Well, not only that, uh, Senator, and thank you very much, but they've had, since 2014, troops on the street to augment the police force that... Uh, because of the, the concern that they've had. The good news is that they've taken significant numbers of those police, those uh, military forces off the street in the last uh, few months. But it, it remains to be a problem, but it's a problem in which is diminishing in the sense that uh, the working of the intelligence organizations together seems to be bearing some fruit. I mean, there's a couple of short-term I shouldn't say short-term, serious problems. We've got an embassy, for example, both the U.S. Uh, bilateral embassy as well as the, the uh, EU embassy is on a busy street. And so from a relatively tactical issue, we need to better protect our diplomats and people that are working directly for the State Department and other agencies. That's, that's a short-term issue that needs to be addressed. The longer-term problem, of course, is, as uh, Senator Murphy had suggested, how do we get the, the various intelligence agencies to work together at several levels of government? Because uh, the Belgian government is relatively complex with the security decisions being made both at the national level, at the regional level, and some community levels. And to get that coordinated is... It takes a lot of engagement by a lot of people, and that's one of the things should I have the privilege of representing the United States, work very hard to get done. Okay, well, we'll certainly want to support your efforts. Uh, again, I, I want to thank all the nominees for uh, your testimony, but your willingness to serve. Uh, thank your families for their sacrifice, too, in these, you know, as, as you work in these very uh, important positions. Uh, with that, the hearing record will remain open for statements or questions for the record until the close of business on Friday, June 22nd. This hearing is adjourned.